0: Hello, welcome to New Books Network in Latin American Studies, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. I'm Elise Mazadiego, Marie Curie Fellow at the University of Amsterdam, and your host today. Today we'll be talking to Irune de Rio Gabiola, a full professor of Spanish and Butler, at Butler University, about her book, Affect, Ecofeminism, and Intersectional Struggles in Latin America, a tribute to Berta Caceres. Welcome, Irune. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for being here. I really look forward to talking about your book. Um, Before we actually get into the topic of the book, however, I would like to give you a chance to introduce yourself. So I wonder if we can start the interview by just introducing us.
1: Yes. Uh, Well, as you said, I am Irune del Río Gaviola, and I'm originally from Spain and moved to the United States to pursue grad studies. And I am a Spanish professor at Butler University in Indianapolis, where uh, I teach courses on Latin American cultural studies and more specifically on Caribbean and Central American cultures. I do also teach classes with an emphasis on critical race theory and queer studies in Latin America.
0: Fantastic. Well, thank you. Thank you for joining us. And yeah, hopefully we will also have the opportunity to talk a little bit about your book prior, but um, and perhaps how this relates to um, the book that we're going to talk about today. But let's get into the actual book itself. Um, I wonder if you could begin just by giving us a sense of how you arrived at writing this book.
1: So about... Ten years ago, I had done previous uh, research on the maquila industry in the U.S.-Mexican border and its negative impacts on both the environment and on women's bodies for a course that I taught in the past. When I came across environmental uh, indigenous leader Berta Cáceres, and this was obviously prior, prior to her assassination, and her commitment to protect the Honduran rivers and also indigenous rights pushed me into researching more in-depth stories, perspectives, and struggles of the Lenca people in Honduras. And it was then when I realized how little information was conveyed, and actually still is, on these conflicts, and how uh, Latin American feminists, feminists and even uh, post-colonial scholars were not uh, paying too much attention to the specific uh, consequences of neoliberalism in countries such as Honduras, mm-hmm. uh, I found out that unfortunately uh, studies on Central American cultural productions and social movements are still quite limited. So in writing this book, I did want to share the experiences, the voices of Indigenous community members, and of course, the voice of Berta Cáceres.
0: Wonderful. So this is
1: basically how I started to conceive the book.
0: hmm Okay, great. And um, I was wondering, did you actually have the chance to ever meet Bertha? Or
1: no, I did not.
0: I pretty
1: much immerse myself into interviews, uh, social media, because Berta Caceres, as the co-founder of the of the social organization Copin, which I will mention more mm-hmm. about it later, uh, is they're pretty active on social media, and so through Facebook, through Instagram, through Twitter, I was able to gr- get a grasp on the conflicts that are uh, taking place in, in, in Rio Blanco, particularly in the community of Rio Blanco, in uh, Tibuca, in Honduras. Unfortunately, I did not have the chance to travel. At the time, I was still working on uh, more specifically Caribbean cultures when I entered this new, new, new world. Mm. And it is unfortunate that she was killed and, well, obviously, her daughters are doing an incredible job at continuing the legacy. And hopefully at some point I'll be able to travel to Honduras. These couple of years uh, have been a little uh, difficult because of COVID, right?
0: Yeah. But that would be
1: my intention in the future.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so the environmental activist, Berta, who you've already um Talked about is a central figure in your book. Um, but I, I really read her as standing in for um, a much larger community that includes the Lenca people in Honduras and the group that you mentioned, the Civic Council of Popular Indigenous Organization, um, which we will refer to as COPIN throughout this interview, but also other environmental activists that are um, based in Latin America, but also Honduras and transnational organizations. Um so what was behind your choice to spotlight Berta Cáceres <clears throat> and also to conceive of this book as as a tribute to her
1: Well um although Berta's popularity uh, was in some ways uh, widespread due to her activism and her platform uh, and the fact that she received uh, multiple awards, including the 2015 Goldman Environmental Prize mm. for the environment, for protecting the environment. Still, uh, little was known about the realities in Honduras. And even many times when we had a march, a women's march, uh, we don't really hear uh, from about uh, figures and, and individuals such as Berta, right? Mm. So In centralizing her figure, I I was expecting scholars and even students, right, because teaching is my primary focus at Butler, so I was expecting to uh, immerse students more more closely in Central American cultures so that they can develop a sociocultural sensitivity and awareness about the dire conditions of of groups completely left out of national political and socioeconomic projects. Similarly, I do have a lot of students in, in the business field, and that's why I think that teaching extractivism, extractivism from a humanist perspective is good for, uh, for students who have no knowledge of what's happening in, in places such as Honduras. Mm-hmm. So, similarly, I was early on drawn to the immensity of, 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 of this woman, right, of Perta Cáceres. She has fiercely and peacefully fought for social and environmental justice in Honduras, in Central America, and since as early as the 90s, when COPIN, uh, the organization we've referred to, which is the Council of Popular and Indigenous Organizations of Honduras, was founded. And throughout the last decades, she worked collaboratively with other organizations such as OFRANE. OFRANE is the Black Fraternal Organization of Honduras, and it's basically composed by uh, the Garifuna communities in Honduras, Uh, Led And this organization is led by Miriam Miranda, another powerful woman. Uh, And so uh, their work together uh, was similarly to protect uh, the indigenous communities from multiple layers of uh, violence that are affecting them and have been affecting them on a daily basis. I also want to mention uh, one important battle that Berta won throughout her lifetime. Mm. And it was the withdrawal in 2013 of the Chinese transnational corporation Sinoidro that initiated the construction of the Aguasarca Hydroelectric Dam project on the Hualcarque River in the community of Rio Blanco in 2012. And thanks to to Berta's work and also to Copin's activism and their perseverance, the company, this Chinese company, finally decided to back off Unfortunately, the project was taken over in 2014 by the transnational corporation DESA, which stands for Desarrollos Energéticos de Honduras. And it is actually, it is a local corporation that received international funds from banks such as the Dutch Bank and the Fund, And it has always been connected and linked to the government. And, uh, and, uh, and actually, uh, the intellectual authors of Berta's assassination are part of uh, this corporation. So in a way, I did conceive of this book as a tribute to her, reminding us of the powerful women who spread consciousness, who produce positive change locally, regionally, transnationally. And that is another reason why in this book I briefly mention Miriam Miranda uh, because she's uh, the Garifuna leader of uh, of Rane and she's been doing an incredible amount of work to spread uh, care, solidarity, to help communities. And, and I, I will talk about this later, but she's part of my current project as well.
0: Okay. Um, yeah, so... Obviously it's worth mentioning which you've already said before is that really Bertha also paid the price unfortunately um by uh, ultimately being murdered um and maybe you can give a little bit more context about that that uh, the, the um the the violence that she um ultimately yes. experienced yeah. She Berta, as well as
1: Miriam and a lot of these women who are activists, right? They have been receiving death threats for 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 numerous years. Berta actually, uh, she demanded protection, and uh, she knew she knew that she was on the line, right? But unfortunately, the government, the government, the government in Honduras uh, after 2009, after the Manuel Zelaya destitution. Uh, has been extremely corrupted and uh, they've implemented uh, neoliberal strategies, neoliberal uh, practices in Honduras through precisely conceding most of the territory. Four years ago, 35% of the Honduras land was uh, conceded and given to for transnational projects. So she had been uh, threatened. She actually even uh, spent a couple of days in jail. She was arrested one time for for possessing a gun in her truck. She was stopped by the military um, when she was on her truck with another Copin activist. And ironically, it was the the military that that actually planted the gun on the truck, but they Mm -hmm. wanted to arrest her and they wanted to, in many ways, control Berta Cáceres. And they thought that in controlling her, they would be able to stop uh, activism uh, by uh, the Copin, by the organization Copin, and they would uh, they would hope that instilling fear in the community would make uh, the Lenka people uh, basically withdraw from their from their uh, activist projects. Mm-hmm. And fortunately, this has not happened. But so Delta, uh, she uh, she was killed March the 3rd, 2016. And she was with uh, Gustavo Castro, who was another um, activist from Mexico. And he was visiting and he was participating in a workshop organized by Copin. And to basically learn about uh, ways of organizing effectively. And they went out for dinner and they briefly stopped by um, uh, uh, Berta Cáceres' mom's home and then they ended up at Berta Caceres' home. Uh, Gustavo stayed at her house that night because apparently he had to work and 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 do uh, and, and connect with uh, Mexico, like also talk to his family. And Berta offered offer him a, a room in her house to to do this work. And it was around 11 p.m. or so that uh, Gustavo, according to his um, obviously his testimony, because he was a witness of this murder. He was standing in, in the room and he heard a noise. And so he started calling, Berta, Berta, Berta. Well, someone broke into Gustavo's room and shot him in the ear. He was extremely lucky because nothing really happened to him. I mean, you know, he, he, obviously he wasn't killed. Then he went into Berta's room and found her uh, on the floor and she had been shot at least six times in the abdomen. And unfortunately she passed. But the government has been trying to... Uh, basically to undermine this, uh, this assassination. They even talk about some type of romance, uh, you know, violent event where like, they, they made up all these lies to dissenter themselves. Mm-hmm. And so there's been uh, several trials, but uh, things are going extremely slow. And the family is very frustrated about the outcome of these trials because still no intellectual authors have been responsible for the, for the murder. And it has been proved. And there's evidence that DESA, which is the, the corporation, the transnational corporation that took over the Aguazarca project, is behind her killing. Mm. But as of now, we don't really have those important people, those important uh, authors uh, in prison or sentenced
0: mm. yet and so the the trial is still ongoing this this isn't something that has been completely finalized despite the fact that the actors and Dessa is still operating under impunity
1: so the 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 the, the sicarios that actually killed her had been sentenced about a couple of years ago, but still uh, the, the judiciary process is extremely slow. And part of, part of this is because of the Supreme Court in Honduras mm. is uh, extremely linked to the Juan Orlando Hernandez government, the neoliberal government that uh, fortunately has been, uh, is not in power anymore since January of 2022. And, but the, the, the family and copying and activists uh, all throughout the world, basically, specifically in Latin America, they demand uh, responsibility and liability for the intellectual authors. Of these uh, this planning to kill Berta Cáceres.
0: Mm. yeah well i I found that um the, the you really begin the book with this um by retelling this story, um which is a very moving um kind of way to start the book. And I think what it does is at least for me as the reader really um, begins to tap into more of the uh, emotional side of the story um, as well as uh, the kind of sentiments or response, emotional response that one could feel um, when reading the story of Berta's, not uh, her her death, but also the sort of long-standing violence that she might have experienced, as well as the injustice that kind of continues um, in this region, but also against. Um, a, a large majority of uh, environmental activists, not only in Honduras but also really in, in Latin America more broadly, and maybe we can talk about that a little bit later. But I want to sort of shift to the the topic of affect, which um, is a key concept in your book and your six chapters focus on different yet interrelated forms of affect which are then mobilized towards activism and social movements in the context of Honduras. So I was wondering if you can share with our listeners some of the affects you address and what is their relationship to transformative change, environmental activism, and the figure of Beta.
1: Yes and um, so In the process of uh, developing a deep cultural and social uh, consciousness about the resistance movements in Honduras, I did feel extremely affected by by the violence perpetrated against indigenous communities. In acknowledging the transformative nature of this affective relationship, I did find myself digging into theories of affect by uh, primarily philosophers such as Baruch Spinoza and contemporary philosopher, Brian Masumi. And so I started to think of, as affect, as, uh, of affect as action, uh, to affect, right? As theorized by Spinoza. And in exploring affect as a verb, or exploring affect as a verb, implies intersubjectivity. It implies the involvement of uh, the affecting subjects on the one hand, and uh, the affected object. So when approaching affect from this standpoint, I observed how uh, traditionally affect has been unfairly distributed. And and what do I mean by this? What what do I mean by affect being unfairly distributed? And then I started thinking about the context of colonialism where the European agents uh, who were the subjects uh, have affected negatively uh, the lives of the indigenous peoples who were the the affected objects, right? through violent processes. And what are these violent processes? Some of them throughout the centuries of colonialism were land dispossession, displacements, religion imposition, of course, slavery, torture, settler mentality, etc. And so throughout colonialism, uh, the colonizers had the power over, and I'm going to mention a couple of concepts articulated by, by Masumi, Brian Masumi, Uh, the colonizers had the power over uh, the indigenous communities. But of course, there were also rebellions and disruptions questioning uh, this static relationship between the subject and the object. So in this fashion, uh, for me, I saw how the disruptive moments of rebellions and revolutions uh, reflected the power to change. And this means the power to change that constructed inferiority, right? And so this idea of the power to change, as uh, Masumi theorizes it, um, underlines um, the potential of affect as action, which resides in its multiple possibilities. Uh, the way I see it, to transform uh, that hierarchical relationship I've been referring to, because in this relationship between affecting subjects and affected objects, we are all transformed, right? We are all touched. Mm. And once marginalized groups have the power to change, then a whole new set of relationships is activated. And meaning different marginalized groups can affect one another in positive ways. And this is basically what's happening not only in Honduras, where all of these uh, social movements are working together, but not just because they want to defend uh, indigenous rights and the environment, of course they do that, but also they come together, forming what I also talk about in the book, uh, the intersection, the intersectional struggles, uh, quoting Angela Davis, right? And so um, this is extremely powerful, the way they affect each other positively to uh, to conceive of uh, of democratic future and of possibilities to to uh, transform that uh, the violence that they've been experienced throughout colonialism, -colonialism, post-colonialism, neo-colonialism, etc. And so it is within this alternative framework that I analyze the actions of Berta and Coppino, reading them as positive interventions towards social and environmental justice. I uh, also see how affect as a verb, as action, nurtures affective practices in the form of care, in the form of solidarity, outrage, mourning, melancholia, hope, utopia, right? These are concepts that I examine in the book. And these are precisely those new relationships that that these groups create among each other. And, and again, going farther, uh, going uh, also farther from um Issues of indigenous rights or the environment. I mean, uh, both Copin and Ofrané are extremely involved with defending the LGBTQ plus community, uh, peasants, um, sex workers, and rural women. And those, uh, these identities, these subjectivities, are part and parcel of their fights as well of these in, intersectional struggles. And so, these affective practices that I just mentioned are they are relational, they're transversal and this idea of relationality and transversality is very important to me because in, in, in these relationships in this context they, their ability to they have the ability to empower communities and the actors therefore resist subjugation and produce change. So these affected objects that I was talking about before become also subjects, become actors, become agents of their own change. And uh, they start this way by dismantling hierarchical relationships. So from the violence enacted through extractivism, strategies of resistance based on affectivity are possibly positively performed. And, and this, uh, this uh, idea of affectivity involves care, solidarity, outrage, mourning, melancholy, which I decided to focus on those ones because I thought they were very important in, in all the documents I saw. on uh, on the documentaries, sorry, that I saw uh, on on Berta, on the Lenka people, uh, the ethnographic studies that I've been uh, reading, and the interviews uh, with, uh, particularly with uh, Bertita Cáceres, Bertita, perdón, Zúñiga, who's one of the daughters of Berta Cáceres. Hmm. And that's why I I think that these uh, groups, these social movements, these uh, indigenous communities are extremely powerful at... Moving affect in positive ways, pretty much.
0: Yeah, I mean, my sense also was that you, as an author, um, were working through your own affective experience in the writing of this book. And um, that, in the way that you write this book as a tribute to Bertha, I also sort of felt as if it was kind of an elegy as well, which has, I think, an effective and emotional component uh, that uh, runs through the book that you know potentially can be conceived of a, as the, the the real central thread uh, of the book. <clears throat> Definitely, and
1: and and you're absolutely right. I I was very affected, uh, and the more I the more I watched documentaries, interviews with Berta, especially with Berta, right. Uh, and, and, and mostly when she was dead, right? So you're here, you are listening to this incredible woman and thinking, oh my God, she was killed. What did she go through? I mean, what, what, what were those last moments? When actually, interestingly, the day she was killed, and well, she was killed at night, but that day she had talked to one of her daughters and she told her, whatever, whatever happens to me, be strong, continue the fight. And in some ways that was a foreshadowing. That was a very strong foreshadowing. And... As I was affected by the whole process of writing the book, I was truly and truly truly affected and, and kind of sad, but hopeful at the same time. I was thinking a lot about my students uh, at Butler. We do research, but we teach, and we teach a lot of students from different fields. And I keep that in mind all the time. Um, if this book is going to be studied in cl- in the classroom setting, I, I I want my students to to share that affectivity. I want my students uh, to develop that consciousness that sensitivity especially if a lot of those students are going to go into the business the field of business doing international business I do have a lot of students from international business major and so so I think that this is a way to to make change make positive change as a professor and as a teacher as an instructor as well and, and the, 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 I'm playing with that in my book I am I'm trying to to make people like to awake people. I'm trying to, to to create a response through through the production of this book.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, I I definitely see how your own intellectual work has the the same kind of resonance or has the potential to have the same kind of resonance as say the work of Beta Caceres in the sense that you are sharing these stories and that through the stories, um, that somehow there is that that process that effective process that effective exchange um and dialectic that then has the potential as you say to have some sort of transformative change so it's 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 very interesting to see how how that operates through the book um and and how that carries through exactly um so To kind of get back to the intersectionality of, say, Berta's work and the work of Copin, which you you mentioned um, as their uh, dedication to other types of issues, let's say, um, other than sort of environmental degradation extractivism. They're also uh, fighting or at least responding to other sorts of issues around uh, race, gender. Um, and you briefly mentioned those. So um, as I say, one aspect is really to identify Bertha and Coupin's work within a frame of Latin American ecofeminism. So I really wanted to focus just for a second on the term ecofeminism um, and how it can be specified or made distinct within the Latin American context. So could you first explain what is your reading of Latin American feminism and then how Coping constitutes a form of ecofeminism?
1: Yes. So um, Latin American ecofeminism um, has been um, widely articulated through many uh, social movements led by women who defined uh, feminisms as popular and decolonial in the context of Latin America, due to centuries of uh, colonial subjugation, but even post-colonial subjugation as well, and the long lasting legacy of uh, environmental concerns in the region. And this is because uh, Latin America has uh, suffered from land grabs and the plundering of uh, natural resources that affect women in very particular ways. And why am I saying this? Because in indigenous communities, it is women who have to find water and grow crops. And so when deforestation, for example, or the construction of hydroelectric dams occur, it is women who have to find new areas to continue growing food or searching for other water sources, which complicates their life right, and their livelihood. And and so that's another reason why they demand sustainability and food sovereignty as well. And plus, in cultures such as the Garifuna, of Honduras particularly, uh, women pass on their ancestral knowledges from generation to generation. And, and these cosmologies are connected to nature and, and to the commons. Uh, and the commons are being threatened by extractivist practices, right? So this link between women and nature, and I'm avoiding any essentialism because we do have to understand these particular realities. And, and one of them is that in the Garifuna culture, it's women who pass on land from generation to generation. So women have been historically, right? The, the, the basically the the ones taking care of the environment, the ones that uh, whose whose land goes from generation to generation, as I mentioned. So they have been the um, the guards the guards of the land. So uh, in addition, uh, once a transnational corporation occupies indigenous territory for the construction of uh, an extractive project of any kind. The area tends to be militarized, and again, it is women who suffer from abuse, from sexual assault, from rapes, and even death. So, as a consequence, ecofeminism emphasizes emphasizes a decolonial type of feminism that highlights uh, this intersectional analysis that looks at the crossroads of gender, ethnicity, sexuality, and the environment. So, the environment is a subject in itself. It is not an object, right? Hmm. So coping in this way, as a social organization, is bringing together gender and environmental awareness through action, but also ethnicity. So all these uh, these identity categories that uh, suffer from multiple layers of violence. And they do not use the term ecofeminism per se. I think that behind this term, there might be a little bit of privilege because it has been theorized uh, from, West, from a Western perspective, of, of, although we also have uh, women from other areas, uh, such as India, right? And myes Ma- uh, who talks about fem- ecofeminisms in the 90s. And so uh, we can think about ecofeminism as being a little bit of a, of a careful term or, or a kind of a conflicted term. And that's why they prefer to use decolonial or popular feminisms. But I, I purposefully use that term because it has been widely spread in Latin America and because the, 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 the concerns for the environment have existed. Have, has a, they have structured these identities. They have structured uh, these communities. And I think that we need to understand that as well from a very specific perspective and a very situated perspective.
0: Yeah. And maybe could you um, expand a little bit on how Copin, in fact, um, through its very particular kind of organization or its initiatives, perhaps constitutes or puts into practice a kind of theory of ecofeminism?
1: Well, they they do it by uh, working together with other organizations and educating uh, community members. Uh, on the importance of the preserving the land and sustaining the land. And, and we, we see this uh, in, in, in some of the documents that have been published by Lenka women where uh, they mentioned the power of uh, ancestral medicine through the land, talking about plants, uh, talking about herbs, and talking about uh, very harmonic ways of uh, nurturing the land, and also through um, practices, rituals. Copin. So the Lenga community, and particularly Copin as well, they do practice composturas, and the composturas are uh, ceremonies, are rituals that thank the land, thank the land, and for for all the produce that they give to the communities, and it is women. Many times, who are leading those ceremonies, and so here I see this uh, work between gender, uh, well, this this basically connection between gender and the environment, and uh, this it's also a spiritual connection because as Prata Cáceres multiple times she said that the river, the Walcarque River, her precious river that she protected right until she was killed. And was uh, guarded by the spirits of the girls. The spirit de las niñas, right, mm-hmm. was in, in that river. And so this, uh, Copin goes, I think, um, a step further in, in, in ecofeminism by, by centralizing the environment. The environment is at the same level as humans. We are part of the environment and they are agents. They, they, they are fluid. The environment is fluid, it's not static. And so I think that that's another contribution to ecofeminism, that, that coping focuses on uh, the presence of the girls, the spirits of the girls. Again, we have this gender element and the fact that they are children as protectors of the river, as uh, protectors of its biodiversity and its current flow, which is being threatened by the Aguazarca hydroelectric dam which you know, has terrible consequences, not just killing that biodiversity, but also uh, stopping the flow of the river and, and, and probably producing, climate, I mean, uh, com- contributing to climate change, which is another another topic, another element that the Garifunas and the Lengas are now uh, discussing and are, are now fighting against climate change that has been originated by these extractive projects and, and, and by centuries of, of uh, the plundering of natural resources as well.
0: Mm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I I find that um, what your book does quite uh, well, and, you know, from a very interesting standpoint of mine, is that um, you read ecofeminism through the lens of, say, indigenous cosmology or um, a particular sort of... uh, indigenous cosmology that's situated in Honduras and how it then runs through the actual organization of Copan and and is obviously embodied in in Bertha and the kind of work that she did um so um yeah and perhaps we can talk a little bit more then about um what you mentioned in, in terms of care because in yes. fact in chapter 5 you do uh discuss a 2019 publication by Lenka women titled Sanad es resistir or healing is resisting in English which you describe as quote an archive of affects that demand the recognition and implementation of Lenka ancestral wisdom to heal female and earth bodies by way of alternative medicine and a politics of care emerging from the brutal circumstances surrounding extractivism, end quote. From this publication um, is the concept of care in relationship to the body and through indigenous cosmologies. That, for me, reminded me um, of Audre Lorde's idea that care, and specifically self-care, is a radical act of self-preservation, survival, and, uh, in scare quotes, Political warfare, um, or to use her her term, political warfare. Um, can you explain your assertion that care is a political form of resistance for the Lenka and how this extends human preservation towards the environment?
1: Yes, definitely, and and and, and, and of course, I was thinking about Audrey Lord's as well as uh, Alicia Garza's uh, statement on uh, the Black Lives Matter movement and, and the importance of care and, and self-care. And I, I'm going to talk about this uh, right now. So the Lenka people, uh, as well as the Garifuna people, uh, they, they develop practices that stress self-care and collective care as restorative, right? Uh, healing uh, is, is resisting. So the, the process of healing is extremely important due to the, con- the dire circumstances of not just extractivism, but narco-trafficking, and uh, patriarchy, capitalism, etc. So first off, uh, for me, the way I see it after uh, analyzing and studying these cultures and listening, particularly listening to their voices, is that self-care implies a focus on the body and the territory, and we cannot separate this, specifically because of what I've mentioned before, that it is women who have to gather the water. It is women who are growing crops, and it is women that are, that are terribly affected by the militarization of, of the territory and by criminalization. So self-care implies a focus on the body and the territory to protect themselves from those violent forces, right? Especially the police force, the military, but even the government. And you were mentioning, Audre Lorde, and I just mentioned Alicia Garza. Alicia Garza, who was a co-founder of the BLM movement, She relates the significance of self-care in order to have the free time to imagine better futures, to dream, to create safe spaces, and to think of alternatives to dismantle racism, patriarchy. And uh, and, and self-care also, autocuidado, we say in Spanish, is demanded by the Mesoamerican defenders. There's a group. There's a network of uh, women defenders uh, from the Central American region that uh, pay special attention to the issues of self-care because all of these women, like even Miriam Miranda, they get exhausted after a day of uh, uh, working towards uh, change and, and facing the, the, the violence that affects their bodies and territories on a daily basis, and so self care is and i'm not talking about of course this in this western conceptualization of self care as going to the gym and take all this you know like it's a consumerist perspective that i'm trying, to, obviously to stay away from because it has nothing to do with the realities of of self care in these communities right uh, for the the western subject uh, self care is about privilege but <laughs> for the self, for the communities it's about preservation right it's about staying alive, surviving, preserving their own bodies, but also preserving the environment because without the environment, we cease to exist. So it is a completely different conceptualization of self-care. And also uh, regarding collective care, which is intersecting with uh, self-care, Sanare's Resistir, so the title in itself states that healing the bodies of the Lenka people is a powerful form of resistance. So in analyzing the context of uh, violence in Honduras, uh, this collaborative work by Lenka women uh, describes the pains they suffer in different parts of the, their bodies when, when extractivism invades their territories. Uh, there's a section in which they talk about the head, they talk about the stomach, they talk about the, the, their legs, and the, 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 the arms and the hands, and how there's different sensations, emotions and feelings and how their, their bodies is actually responding to these, uh, these threats, these proximate, these close threats, right? Mm-hmm. And so at the same time, they provide uh, ancestral medicinal knowledge through a thorough list of, uh, of alternatives like plants and herbs that can help the community towards that healing. And again, the importance of the, the earth and the land, right, to heal their own bodies. And eventually, that's how the territory, as well, it recycles itself. And so why is this? Because obviously, the stronger these women are, the better their response to violence will be. And and that's why also having free time to dream, to think of democracy, to think of a better future is so essential, right? And similarly, uh, the Garifuna people uh, in Honduras, they just published I think it was in two thousand and twenty, by the end of two thousand and twenty they published um, a guía medicinal, a medicinal guide in in the context of the coronavirus pandemic uh, that includes a glossary of teas made of plants and and it's proven that has this has worked for people with uh, with the virus in in the community. And they also uh, they also um, highlight the necessity of these uh, medicinal uh, remedies. To strengthen the immunological systems of the Garifuna, and why? And it's because of the Western, the imposition of Western lifestyles has uh, weakened these bodies, and industrialized food has weakened these bodies. And therefore, we need to go back to these cosmologies and ancestral knowledges to value the land and to live uh, from live off the land in a very harmonical way. So. Both uh, Sanare's Resistir, Healing is Resisting, and the Medicinal Guide by, by uh, Ofrane, they both are examples of, of this strong intimate connection with the earth. And this relationship to nature is one of care, right? So that's also another element of ecofeminism, care. And, and, and instead of the aggressive relationship that the West has had with nature, right? So that's why uh, they become forms of resistance when they are strengthening their immune systems, when they're working with other communities, actually, uh, the Garifuna people right now, they are, uh, well, they've been working on uh, uh, growing coconuts, the coconut seeds, planting seeds, growing coconuts in in the area of Vallecito, and it has been extremely successful, because they've been able to uh, feed the community, a lot of communities, actually, and and so they are uh, doing this in different areas as well, to, to claim food sovereignty, to claim autonomy and self-sufficiency as well.
0: Yeah. And I was wondering, I, I don't know if you can speak to this at all, but I was very curious um, as to the reception, as you were talking, I, I was very curious as to the reception of these publications and the potential for a, a more transnational read, readership or if these publications are really designed to, um, to help uh, the, the local communities for which they're written, or is it really um, do you see a, a larger readership of these of these books? I,
1: I definitely see a, a larger readership. And one of the reasons why I think so is because these are uh, accessible online. Mm. These are PDF documents that you can, anyone can find online. And I think there's that purpose. I mean, the indigenous, co- the, the indigenous groups and, and, and the, the members of these social organizations are not just educating their community members. Of course, they're educating the, the children because they're going to be the future, right? But I think they are also educating us people like me, or Western people, Western individuals that are so much uh, detached from nature, from the true significance of nature and the value of nature. And therefore, I, I do think that there's a transnational uh, platform in mind. Mm-hmm. And and unfortunately, I don't really see that these um, publications have been uh, analyzed or have been discussed. Well, the, the Medicinal is pretty recent it also talks about violence right because violence is endemic and is structural to Honduras but I would uh, I wish that they could um, access a larger audience and again as a professor as a teacher this is also my job to um, include uh, documents reports such as these ones in my classes so that my students uh, can have these Relationship with the, the the content and can listen to their voices, the voices of the members of the communities, and I think that's why uh, I try to 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 think of um, of the students as, as you know potential educators, but also uh, self like aware culturally culturally and, and socially aware of, of of the 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 dramas that are happening, the dire conditions that are happening in Honduras, and how obviously the West is to blame for all of these. Right and, and the, the transnational corporations are to, are to blame for all of this, and uh, and having governments such as the Juan Orlando Hernandez uh, presidency that was extremely detrimental. Uh, that was a detractor of the communities. It was extremely negative, right in 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 the in the Honduras uh, for the Honduras communities, not only just like indigenous in general Afro indigenous, but also the peasants and, and the teachers and and so I, I think that there is, there, to go back to your question, there's definitely these, this idea in mind. And, and, and it, just because of the accessibility as well of these documents, that anyone can access them. Anyone that does a search on Google and finds like Garifuna cultures, Garifuna coronavirus, they've been, they've been incredibly active in, in sewing masks. The women have been sewing masks for the community. Men have been helping with the growing of the coconut seeds. They've created ancestral homes where uh, where people in the community can go and gather, and it's similar to Utopia, to the center that Copin uh, created, named Utopia. So the Garifunas are creating these spaces to heal their bodies and to to also um, provide or to provide a space for self care, similarly, because self care and collective care, you know, are completely interrelated.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I guess this gets to my question about uh, utopia, um, which is a facet of your book uh, that for me captured um, my attention and my interest. Um, Because I guess in my opinion, so much of our present imaginary is missing a utopian vision of the future. Uh, A lot of it is very dystopic. and uh, so I was very interested to read about the Copin's creation of a physical space named utopia. And I was just wondering if you could describe what this physical space is, but also in what ways does Copin reconceptualize the notion of utopia and uh, affect us to, to move towards that vision?
1: Definitely. And uh, before entering into this concept of utopia, I do want to talk about hope. Hmm. Because hope is another affect, affective practice that I mention in the book, and that's uh, related to utopia. And utopia, in many ways, is the the the, the idea and, and materialized in a space that uh, embodies hope. So I I talk about hope uh, quite a bit in the book, and this idea of hope in, within this uh, context of violence emerges from um, from moments of crisis, right? And, actually here basically referring to Jajatri Spivak's uh, conceptualization of hope hmm. as a crisis, as, as, as originated in crisis. And instead of a, this crisis causing a paralysis, um, this crisis has the potential to mobilize all of us, to, to, to lead us to action, right? And to, to act critically as well. So, I think that in these communities, hope is constantly there. Remaining hopeful allows them to pre- persevere and to continue nurturing the fight and the intersectional struggles towards social justice. And so, this idea of hope, this uh, feeling of hope, uh, is tied to the construction of the center, uh, Utopia. So, Copin uh, created uh, this center, right, this physical center uh, named Utopia to generate space to imagine democracy. <clears throat> and so people are welcome. Anyone is welcome in this, in this space. And they meet and they share ideas and they share dreams. They draft proposals. So in some way, the concept of utopia is materialized in this space, embodying hope, as I just said, right? And similarly, care, because all the perspectives and stories uh, that are um, communicated in this space, they matter, right? They matter, and, and their care, uh, they're actually are cared of. So, you know, we know that historically these bodies have not mattered, right? And and they are providing, they're creating these spaces for their voices to matter and, and, and to claim care, like they do have to be cared of. I mean, they're mm-hmm. not just subjects who are doing the caring, but they also are receiving the caring. And so utopia in this sense encompasses uh, resistance, you know, unfortunately, uh, um, there has been uh, threats to the, to set the center on fire. There's been recent threats because during the coronavirus pandemic, uh, Copin uh, decided to offer the center to those uh, who had COVID uh, while in jail. And so that way they, they would give them a safe space to heal. Well, uh, some individuals tied to, to the government uh, started to spread threats to to copin and they 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 actually threat, threatened to to set the center on fire which you know i mean this causes a huge alarm and and again it it is another example of the violence that they're constantly facing and so this utopia in many ways which is a space of uh, care self care collective care a space where hope is embodied and it is also uh, similar to the ancestral homes that the Garifuna have been creating, particularly due to the coronavirus pandemic. But another important thing that I want to mention right now uh, regarding uh, or in relation to hope is that at least now, uh, we are, it's May 2022, and we can be hopeful because Xiomara Castro became president by a landslide of Honduras. Uh, she actually. So, uh, in January of 2022. And Xiomara Castro, she's now a symbol of hope for the country, for some mm. things to change. Uh, Castro, she was the, she's the, sorry, she's the wife of uh, Manuel Zelaya. Manuel Zelaya was president of Honduras uh, up to 2009, uh, when he was uh, dest- overthrown, and destituted by a military coup d'etat. Manuel Zelaya uh, represented hope as well, and he actually did a lot for the communities. And that's one of the reasons, the main reason why he was destituted, because he was able, his government was able to decrease uh, social inequalities and and invest in social programs for the communities. And this was a threat to the neoliberal, to the elites, to the families that have had all the power in Honduras. And so the the the, the resistance movements uh, started to boil precisely right after the the overthrow the, the destitution of uh, Manuel Zelaya with the imposition of neoliberal regimes. And so, Xiomara Castro, is now uh, the president, and she is a reminder that things can get better, that change can happen, and that uh, there's some uh, hope for the communities. She actually. Uh, Cancelled all uh, mining concession uh, due to the environmental impact. So she started with uh, she started on the right uh, in the right way. And mm-hmm. but again, we do have to be extremely cautious for what's going to happen with Honduras because, uh, as I mentioned in this interview, the Supreme Court is still in the hands of those with uh, strong connections to the previous neoliberal president, Juan Orlando Hernandez, who, by the way, was just arrested and indicted on drug and trafficking charges. And actually, his father is in jail as well.
0: I mean, okay. the, the
1: previous governments are extremely corrupted. And, and there's been a lot of impunity in, in, in the country as well.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think, um, yeah, it's, it's wonderful that you uh, take us to the message of hope, which, you know, I, I clearly felt towards the end of the book that you were um trying to to sort of finalize or at least come to the end of your book uh on this on this idea um and at least give us an impression that there is some hope um, yes. despite um uh the the grief that i think is often attributed to uh uh Berta Cáceres' uh death and um also how that's entangled with ecological loss as well. Um, But in fact, you do leave your reader with a glimmer of hope. And Mm. I I thought that was quite interesting that you um, provide that through the sort of acts of honor and remembrance and celebration of Bertha's life um, and how perhaps those uh, practices and acts of memorialization, um, perhaps also uh, allow Berta to to continue to live on um, despite the fact that she's physically not here um, but it's also really interesting and good to know um, mm-hmm. more about the very contemporary uh, political situation in Honduras which um, I'm sure you didn't have a chance to to feature in the book because these are relatively new recent events but yes it's, uh, it, it's wonderful to to sort of hear that. Honduras is moving in that direction for the moment exactly um, <laughs> well <clears throat> we've taken a lot of your time and uh, I just want to thank you for, uh, for this interview and for the opportunity to introduce us to your book which I hope encourages everybody to um, go out and get uh, a copy um, but as a final question I wonder if you can tell us what you're working on now
1: yeah, well, thank you very much for this interview and for giving me the opportunity to to center right these these communities. Berta Miranda, Miriam Miranda, who's now extremely active as well, and so I hope that the listeners have the curiosity to to get involved in in learning more about Central America, Honduras specifically, but Central America large as well. So. I still am working on uh, some of these effective practices that I started to develop in the book. And I'm now uh, more focused on the Garifuna culture, so Miriam Miranda's work, uh, which is still is tied to the work because they do work together, as I mentioned. And I'm looking specifically at care. I'm looking at care, and I'm looking at self-care and collective care and the ways that uh, these communities are providing cons completely different uh, approaches to care and self-care. And and they are in many ways overcoming uh, the the ideas of care that were uh, articulated and were discussed and explored by second-wave feminisms, which they would criticize care because obviously it was uh, just uh, attached to to, to gender and women uh, doing the labor of care with uh, no obviously with this unpaid labor. But so I'm looking at it from a completely different perspective. And it it may be a perspective that uh, focuses on care and the commons, and we have not really talked about commons. I mentioned commons a couple of times, and I don't really know if uh, the listeners are familiarized with uh, this concept. With the commons or the bienes comunes, as it's been also um, uh, mentioned in a lot of the... uh, work published in Spanish by uh, experts in extractivism are the public goods that uh, due to their natural and social and cultural heritage belong to the communities and the commons have a priceless value. And so these are the the products that are being threatened and that are actually being privatized through these uh, land concessions. So I'm working on these aspects of care and commons and, and and abolitionist perspective of care and what do I mean by this? The, evolution, the abolitionist perspective of care, it's a viewpoint that consists consists of building what doesn't exist yet. So different ways of caring for each other that are more horizontal, that establish, that establish new relationships as well and uh, involve processes of healing. And this idea of care and self-care I also see it uh, being prominent in the Afro-descendant feminisms in Spain. That's another uh, part of my research that I'm actually working on right now. And I, de- I do actually take a lot of ideas from the courses that I teach because one of the beautiful things at Butler is that we do have the freedom to teach the courses that we feel passionate about or on topics that we love and connect them to our research. So as I was reading novels by afro Spanish women, women who are Spanish and are black as well, which in some ways is still unknown in this country, right? And right now in Spain, they do focus on care and self care a lot, and it is a common thread. So possibly at some point, I would like to maybe work on a transnational study of blackness as well, in in taking into account uh, the the. the, the the work done by the Garifunas in Honduras, but also the the work done by the Afro-Spanish women in Spain. And, I mean, these are just ideas. So right now I'm working on a couple of projects on uh, decolonizing care, because I see also care from a decolonial perspective uh, moving beyond the hierarchical relationship of care that was criticized by, and you know, of course, I mean, it was rightly so criticized by second-wave feminisms and, and moving closer to the idea of care similarly analyzed by uh, or by, by black uh, women in the US. So this is a little bit, uh, basically like this is kind of the, 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 pr- the root of my future research and um, the... Uh, themes of uh, contemporary, like a current research that I'm working on right now.
0: Wonderful. Well, we look forward to uh, reading more about that and sort of see it materialize. Um, Thank you very much, Arunay. Thank you so
1: much, Elise, for, for giving me this incredible opportunity.